Hello everyone, it's April 18th, 2023. This week we're taking a look at how SpaceX is saving cash on Falcon 9 construction, also Relativity Space is ditching Terran 1 and moving on to Terran R, which will also save money. Space is hard, partly because it's so damn expensive. Let's get to it, time is money, or something, and lift off. Welcome to episode 405 of the Overall Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And no Dennis today. So no Dennis. <laughs> it's just us two. I don't think he'll mind if I say this, but hopefully he's going to be okay. He got a sore throat the day he's supposed to be flying back from a conference and like the positive vibes or whatever, like whatever you believe in, if you think it'll help, send him towards Dennis because uh, really, really suck if he has COVID yeah. and can't fly home. So he was flying back from a conference. Is that just your common conference, whatever we call it? I forget what the term is. Yeah. Conference crud. There's some there's some good alliterative name, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I don't even know what conference he was at. I, I It's funny because he flew out and flew back the exact same days that my partner flew out and flew back from a conference. My partner went to an education psychology conference. He's a professor. <laughs> like, maybe it's the same one. I, I jokingly asked, and it, it got buried in other things that we were talking about. So, <laughs> But yeah, uh, I, I think I might need to... If he's if he's sick, I'm going to like dig in to my favorite games and like send him some send him some games on steam or something and just hope that it doesn't suck too bad playing video games on his laptop because he'll be quarantined for a while so uh dennis dennis hasn't left yet he's kind of stuck uh before his journey but juice the jupiter icy moons explorer is not stuck it launched how's Good that segue, for a transition yeah. there you go <laughs> not too, i mean not too much to say it's just like hey juice successfully launched pretty darn cool yeah i saw some uh pop-ups about it i didn't really read anything but uh successful launch so go isa <laughs> yeah it's pretty cool it's gonna do i think four five gravity boosts or gravity assists uh earth uh any year venus and then earth and then mars and then earth again uh maybe i'll include a, a gif in the show notes of its of its trajectory these kind of just kind of suck to include in the show notes because like on the website they'll probably look fine but in the email i always have to reduce their size down they're almost illegible but uh it's it's on wikipedia like it's it's a good gif all these inner solar system boosts and then like all the way up to Mars and then a boost and then all the way up to Jupiter. It's pretty, pretty neat. And it's doing all this with solar power, right? Right. As opposed to, um, thermonuclear or, uh, yeah. Or like an RTG. Yeah. I mean, it's got, it's got really big solar panels. So yeah, I'd be shocked if it did. I, I don't remember any talk of alternate power sources. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's the reason for the big solar panels is that, um, you know, this thing is going pretty far out in the system and still relying just on solar. So they're going to need to be big. Mm. The solar panels are 85 square meters. So that's that's huge. Tennis court is 260 square meters. So it's the area of half a singles tennis court. Yeah. <laughs> that's so much solar panel. <laughs> that's what you need out of Jupiter. So, SpaceX cost cuts. So, they're always happening all the time. We just don't hear about it. But this is worth mentioning, right? We have something more specific yeah. to talk about. So, thanks to Delta V in the chat for um, pointing this out. The Space News article uh, had kind of a cool little discussion about this most recent uh, transporter mission that I, I totally would have missed if the chat hadn't had uh, pointed it out. On the 
stream, it was evident that the second stage engine was a lot shorter, like comically shorter. If you look at the photos, um, it, it looks it looks wrong. And so this is actually um, the new Merlin 1D plus engine. Um, and by by plus, of course, we mean less performance uh, due to the shorter engine bell. Um, but the nice thing about cutting the engine bell a little short when you can use one of these upper stages uh you know when you are not uh pushing whatever configuration of falcon to its you know to its limits if you've got room to spare you might as well cut the performance a little bit because you're not going to recover the second stage and then you can use this uh shorter engine bell which is uh cheaper to build and faster to build um the engine bell is made out of uh niobium i don't i suspect it's not not like pure niobium i think it's probably a niobium alloy but niobium is expensive like on the market it's expensive to machine it's like really tough to machine so you have to pay people who are really good at it you probably have to accept uh higher like losses due to quality and so that's both expensive in time and in money. And so the Merlin 1D Plus is going to be faster to manufacture. And then if you don't need all of the performance, great. Uh, let's put a cheaper engine on and ask the first stage to do, to do more of the work. And so that, that's the other part of this is that the first stage did sort of an unusual thing. It did, instead of doing a three engine reentry boot, re-entry burn and then a one entry landing it did a one engine re-entry burn and then a three engine landing um, we've seen first stages uh land on three engines in the past uh with one of the falcon heavy launches uh it's what the chat says i believe it's correct and so um Landing on three engines means you burn for less time because you have more acceleration. Uh, it's a more difficult landing to pull off, but at this point, SpaceX has so much data and so much experience, mm -hmm. they can do it and they can do it reliably. So I, I think that's pretty cool to see some of these modifications that allow them to spend less money on an otherwise very expensive Falcon 9, getting to kind of tailor things and squeeze, squeeze the expense down at, to, to fit the payload is uh the payload and the destination uh is is really cool it, it's making space feel more like you know driving trucks down the highway that's really cool and i guess one thing that surprises me just though is that it's cheaper to do this than to just make the entire engine bell like i guess because it's the niobium alloy or whatever it's that much more expensive kind of surprising to me you know that they would rather use a shorter nozzle and just demand higher performance out of the first stage and that actually is cheaper which is also again cool because that means that these are very reliable systems and that they just work and they're very predictable what would be more expensive about the first because you're, you're talking about this almost as if it's a trade-off what increases the cost of the first stage well i guess just that yeah i mean good question i think just that well for one well i guess you're yeah you're still burning both your it's three and one or one and three engines right i was gonna say like you know the amount of burn time on the engines but uh, that doesn't really change um yeah so so for burn time you're not talking about like the propellants because like when it comes down to it the propellant is kind of like a fixed cost like you know shaving off one one little bit of it at the end really isn't saving you any money in proportion to like 
the launch itself, the losses during fueling, the losses if you have to like step down, uh, mm-hmm. or like, you know, whatever. So, but, but what you're talking about is actually a lot more clever, right? You're talking about like the value of the lifespan of that engine. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point. Yeah, I wouldn't have thought of that. It's just surprising to me because, well, I guess like you said, they've, they know exactly what they're doing. They have characterized these landings so well that they can now do this. But if that weren't the case, I don't think that they would or should um, because you're making a change. Like you're cutting – I'm not like literally cutting an engine bell, but you know, like you're taking some inches off yeah. of it. And it's like that That just by instinct seems crazy to me. Like that's – you know, like that's oh. a good idea, but <laughs> See, but it's, <laughs> but it's it like is. the – it's literally the most downstream component on the rocket. Like any, any issues are likely to come from upstream of that nozzle. You lop off mm-hmm. part of the nozzle. Like I feel like that's a modification that's – pretty darn safe adding and like modifying the nozzle because it's not doing anything for the rest of the it's just sucking up that last little bit of uh impulse uh mm-hmm. as it lets the the gases expand so like i don't know it, there are a lot of engines with like different differently lengthed engine nozzles i mean for goodness sake, Falcon 9 is one of them, right? The Merlin engine has got a, a long and a short version. But yeah, I, th- yeah. I think you're no, – well, I want to go back real quick to your um, your instinct on the engine life. I think this is really good because um, the second stage engine is discard. I mean, like it's disposed of. It burns up. And so any costs that you save on that are costs that you save once. But the other engines – are used over and over and over. So any costs incurred, you know, could potentially be carried forward into, into later launches. So I, I would love to see like the math and see how good of a deal this actually is. Cause I, I thought it was just like an obvious, like, Oh, this is good. No problem. This is great. But you're right. Like it's a little more nuanced than that. Well, the traditional way of landing is you burn three engines, then you land on just one, but now they're doing the reverse. So you're still like, you know, igniting the same number of engines. I guess the question is how long? Now, since this is more of a hover slam than the previous. The ultimate hover slam. Well, I guess ultimate would be all nine. (laughs) But (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, true. But, uh, But since this is like even more of a hover slam, I suppose that means that there's less time burning the engines, right? Wouldn't that be what that means? Like, because you're using more thrust towards the end of the landing. So you're not burning the engines for as long. So that might save, you know, some amount of fuel or whatever, or just time on the engines, like, you know, which is the most important thing. But also I'm wondering though, again, does that affect the rest of the rocket? Like, but I I suppose they, this is something that they now know, like it's okay. It can take, you know, this number of G's. It's not a big deal if they have to hover slam, you know, it can take it. I mean, it's certainly the, the highest acceleration portion of the whole mission. Yeah. They just, they've like figured all this out. So yeah, I guess like, why not not put a couple inches on the engine bill right yeah i mean it's it's just crazy that we live in a world where like i'm not excited for every spacex landing because like that used to be a thing like you would watch spacex launch because you're like are they gonna be able to land this time like what's gonna happen and yeah. like, now it's now it's boring and that's fantastic all right well let's move on to another topic uh another story which is relativity and they have and i think we knew this was coming but i guess it's been made official that they are no longer going to be launching their terran one launch vehicle but they've just decided to move on to terran r so and i think we talked about that like um because there was some mention of the fact that they're probably just done with that vehicle and wanted to move yeah. on to the larger one so at first this was kind of surprising to me um well not surprising because i knew it was coming but i didn't understand 
the reasoning behind it. And I thought that they were just kind of kicking the can down the road, which some space companies and especially maybe NASA does, or maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. But, um, you know, they, like they can't get this to work, although they were very, very close. So they probably could. So why not just move on to the next thing and then just, you know, say, well, okay, the launch date is now this many years away. But actually, it kind of makes sense as I was reading the article, um, or I had read several articles about this. So basically, it kind of comes down to market demand. And uh, this is kind of surprising because I know that for several years, certainly towards like the beginning when we started the podcast, we were seeing a lot of small launch vehicles being built and everything was kind of getting smaller and it was all about CubeSats and small launch vehicles. And I think now it's kind of gone in the other direction, right? Um, at least according to some people, you know, like inside the industry, they're saying that there's just not as much of a demand for small launch vehicles and it's all medium to heavy lift. And the Terran R is a heavy lift launch vehicle. So... I think it's kind of interesting that it's that big of a deal, that it's just not even worth it to pursue Terran 1. We knew that there was way too many small launch vehicles and that some some companies were not going to make the cut, which is just normal. But it seems that everyone is kind of like moving on because even like Rocket Lab is doing the same thing and several other companies too. Um, they're just – they just know that, you know, the small launch vehicles days are kind of numbered. <laughs> I don't know if that's an exaggeration to say. I mean I think it's a little bit of an exaggeration, but I don't think it's unhelpful. It does definitely feel like there's like some whiplash going on um, where like a new uh, market was invented, right? Because th there was not a market for small launch, like, you know, small spacecraft. And so this market kind of gets invented and then a bunch of people pop up to try and fill that uh, need in the in the market. And, you know, some make it and some don't. I mean, it's. I'm just restating what you said at this point, but yeah, it does feel like there's been a little bit of a whiplash, but I don't think it's, I don't really think it's that much of a reversal. I think it's more that we developed new manufacturing techniques to build small spacecraft. And then we went, Hey, you know what? We can influence the way that we build our big spacecraft with the same technology. And so that kind of the, the small sat rush kind of just led to a revival it's not like a, i don't think it's a zero-sum game i think it was just yeah like, like a revival in in bigger spacecraft they just got cheaper and uh cheaper to build and and they're certainly becoming cheaper to fly as time goes on and we're hearing more and more about you know really big uh launchers that uh could potentially just make the cost of mass to orbit just start to plummet. Certainly that's what, you know, Starship is trying to do. But yeah, I don't I don't think it's necessarily a zero sum game, but I don't know. May, there might well be some uh vampirism or cannibalism uh from one to the other. We should ask uh uh Laura Stewart. I bet you she knows. Okay, yeah, yeah. I think I mean I'm probably saying something that I had said several months ago because I remember us having this same conversation that basically kind of like you said, being able to like miniaturize technology doesn't necessarily mean that satellites will get smaller because it's kind of like, and I think I said this before, it's like cell phones, how they were very small about like 20 years ago. Then they got bigger because you could put a lot more into one. So why not just have it be big, but it can do a whole lot more. You know what I mean? It's like the difference between a little flip phone and then a modern smartphone, 
which is significantly larger, I think. Um, you know, like you have this big tablet in your pocket, but it's capable of so much more. So why not just do that? You know, and that's kind of well, the analogy. I don't know if it's a good one, but yeah, I mean, it's an analogy, so there are always going to be holes. But I wonder if it. Mm-hmm. I wonder how good it actually is because, like, with cell phones, you can look at the whole phone as getting smaller and then bigger. But like, instead, look at the screen. I think the screens very consistently got bigger and uh, had you know denser pixel. Mm -hmm. pixel density and like the screens get better and better and better and so as the phone the phones are getting smaller and smaller as the technology is improving and then the the screen growth overtakes the you know the battery shrinkage (laughs) and so then you have phones that are just percentage wise more and more dedicated to their displays and so they start getting bigger again but of course now they're thinner and whatever so like i think that i think that interaction is probably pretty different although maybe there's some like metric you can pull out of the satellite market and watch it be fairly consistent and unidirectional and the size and mass of the uh of the satellite kind of fluctuates around it yeah with again going going back to cell phones it's because i mean the screens got bigger because we want bigger screens but also because we could do that i mean that became a technology that was more affordable uh yeah. so that's why they got bigger you know because that's because that's not a bad thing if it gets bigger but then you could put a lot of other technology in there like you know you could do a camera and you can do the gps and everything else that they have i don't know but you know like there's so much more you could pack in there i mean but yeah you actually bring up a good point um I wonder if there is something in the satellite industry um, that is sort of analogous. Um, yeah. I don't know. But anyway, um, I guess we're getting kind of off topic there. Um, but anyway, so getting back to the Terran R, there were some changes made. And I don't know how early these changes were announced. Was this very recently? Because I didn't know about this. I don't think it was that that long ago. I mean, it's kind of, Terran R is just, it's not been built yet. So the specs are still changing. So like, I don't, yeah, I don't think that this is like, old news that you didn't hear about. I think this is new news. Yeah. So I just wanted to go over some of those changes. So first of all, the dimensions. uh, One thing is that it actually gets bigger. The diameter goes from 16 feet to 18 feet. So slightly larger in terms of the diameter. The height from, and I tried to confirm this with some other sources, but uh, I just found two. The original height was 216 feet, 216, and now it's going to be 270. So that's a pretty big change in the height of the vehicle. And as far as I can tell, that's accurate, but that seems to be a much larger difference than, you know, 16 feet to 18 feet in diameter. Although I guess you would imagine it would get taller, like if it got wider, maybe if they're just trying to keep the same aspect ratio and generally like rockets do have a certain aspect ratio, but that's disproportionately, or maybe not actually, now that I'm thinking about it. (laughs) Well, so I saw an interesting way of of looking at the height of a rocket uh, earlier today which is that you kind of start with the diameter of your rocket. And when you do that, you can fit X number of engines on the the area of the rocket, right? Well, then if those are as many engines as you've put in, they have a certain thrust, then you basically just build the vehicle up until you match the thrust to weight ratio that you want or need or whatever. And so when you get to a certain point, making the diameter of the rocket bigger doesn't lead to a taller rocket because you've already like maxed out how much thrust you can fit in the area. When you make the diameter bigger, 
You can add more engines, but you're not changing the thrust to weight ratio just by changing the diameter. Changing the height would then start to mess with that. And so, yeah, there's certainly like an aspect ratio that is unsustainable for rockets. Like it can't be a the diameter of a pencil and as tall as a house like that is going to snap due to sheer forces before it even has to deal with winds. But yeah, so it, the two aren't necessarily, they don't necessarily need to increase at the same rate, especially with the cube square law. And I don't, I don't know exactly what the ratios are here. They do. It does look fairly proportional, um, but I just thought it was an interesting way to think about it. That they aren't necessarily related in the way that you would expect. Yeah. That's true, and yet also because you have a, it doesn't change the, it probably doesn't change the thrust away. Although I guess it probably would, yeah. depending on propellant density and a bunch of other things, because the circumference, right, the diameter, the actual circumference of the rocket, yeah. which makes up the bulk of the dry mass. The the bigger your rocket, the less you're spending per unit fuel on the container. Right. But then again, the. You know, they're not rockets are are pretty lightweight these days. You know, I mean, like not everybody uses a balloon tank, but like we've gotten pretty good at at minimizing how much tank mass you actually need. But I mean, what you're saying is totally true. It's more of a a rule of thumb that I'm citing here than an actual (laughs) rule of uh, (laughs) physics. But um, yeah, so anyway, um, but those are the new dimensions and an even bigger change. And this is the big one is that there's no longer going to be a reusable upper stage. And this is for good reason. And I can't say that I'm surprised about this, like if they're trying to, you know, launch something because a reusable upper stage really hasn't been done as of today. Mm-mm. We'll see by tomorrow. <laughs> um, it's tough. Yeah. It's real tough. And even if even if Starship uh, successfully launches tomorrow, I don't think that really impacts a reusable upper stage like community or market. Starship is a, is a much different beast than most upper stages you know like may- maybe you can say well starship's a little bit like the neutron upper stage the rocket labs neutron but mm-hmm. eh, i don't <laughs> that that's a very uh they're both very unusual vehicles yeah but so the ceo tim ellis said uh that this mass penalty uh in terms of propellant is too high so there you go um that's one reason um and the other reason just to reiterate what we were just saying the first stage must be prioritized so they just need to start making money faster so make a dead simple second stage so that you don't have to worry about it um concentrate on the first stage and yeah hopefully they can start you know like actually launching customers because they have i think quite a few of them lined up yeah and so it and it looks different if you look at the new uh second stage it doesn't have the little bumps on the side and i can't remember what those are for are those like landing legs of some sort do you do you know what those are or just like aerodynamic surfaces probably for landing i think they were landing legs yeah I don't remember. It's been a long time since we've looked at Terranar. I'm assuming they're landing legs, though, because you you would need them anyway. Because that was the idea was to land it with landing legs, but uh, that is no longer the case. So the next change is that the first stage, however, will be recovered by ship. And I guess this just means that uh, no boost back, right? Because you could, you know, land it on a ship then and they're going to do so now. I guess it's just that they're not going to be returning to launch site. Maybe that's the big difference. Yes, I agree. So this increases the payload to LEO from 20 metric tons to 23.5. And then in the fully expendable mode, you 
you get 33.5 uh, metric tons. So that's good. I mean, that that's an increase in the one thing that you want, I suppose, that really counts is, you know, getting payload to orbit. Uh, mm-hmm. So they're not taking a step backwards there. And then yet the other big change to the first stage, however, is it this is going to have 13 engines, not seven like the previous first stage. And they're going to be configured differently. It looks like on the previous version, they were arranged in kind of like a circle uh, with just like the one in the center. And this is going to be a kind of like a grid. It's a, you got like three, two, three, two, three side by side. That's an interesting pattern. I don't think I've ever seen that on a rocket. It's it's like a hexagonal grid. It's almost like the three by three grid with an extra two by two grid in the middle of it. Two concentric grids. Think of it that way. I guess this is easier because why not just two concentric rings, right? I mean, maybe that doesn't work with 13. I haven't thought about the how that would be like seven, five, and one or something. <laughs> I guess that doesn't work with that number. Yeah. I mean, it, it's almost like they did like the standard nine, nine ring and circle and then just added four extra to the corners. Mm-hmm. But like if if that's the way you're going to think about it, they are school. It's a squished <laughs> nine ring. Also, the grid fins, and this is something that this is a little detail that I didn't notice the first time. So the grid fins actually on the initial design, they were actually flush with the body. I didn't know that they kind of mm-hmm. were like yeah, they're recessed, right? Yeah, yeah, recessed, which is really cool. I guess that was a that was something that they were going to do because they could, uh, but because I don't see how much of a difference that would make. Um, it just looks cool though. It looks super cool. More more of an artist concept benefit than a, than an engineer's benefit. But also no cool insect design on those grid yeah, things. I know, right? Which again, I think that was more of because they could kind of a thing. Yep. I don't know if that makes it any better because I mean, yeah. because like if you think about an insect's wings, they don't work that way. <laughs> so why make that change? <laughs> right. Well, exactly. No, no, exactly. Like the reason that 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 pattern exists is for rigidity, but like these grid fins, they don't need you actually don't want them thin enough to the point where rigidity is an issue. And so since they're, you know, since they're made out of metal, uh, probably titanium, like you don't, you don't need that pattern. It's better to have something that's aerodynamically more reliable or at least aerodynamically easier to model, which is kind of a proxy for <laughs> reliability. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cause you don't, you don't want to have to change that design once you've committed to it. Again, it's a little thing. It's unfortunate to see that go because they do look cool. They look very cool. I love those grid fins. But you still, you um, still have to wonder if it's actually gone. If we ever had it to begin with, I mean, yeah, good point. In fact, almost certainly not. I'm sure that they would not have gone with that design, um, but it would be great if they did. Yeah, so that's another change. And then maybe a more significant one, given what this company is all about, is the fact that they're going to be traditionally manufacturing some parts, specifically the tank barrels. And that's because they're going to be using traditional aluminum alloys. So that's another, I guess, big change, which Kind of looks like they're, you know, maybe just slightly string away from their cool, you know, what well, makes them relativity. <laughs> I, I think, no, I think, I think this is actually pretty prudent um, in their, oh, yeah, no, it's, in their it's press like release. Totally prudent. Yeah. Well, in, in their press release, though, it says Terran R is a 3D printed rocket with initial versions using aluminum alloy tank straight section barrels and a hybrid manufacturing approach. So I think that's, I think initial versions is kind of the key here. Who knows how long they're actually going to continue to do it because it may just prove to be a better way to build a rocket. But mm-hmm. if 3D printing is too difficult, you know, ha- has some issue and you can just, you know that you're going to be able to s- 
to solve that issue initially by switching to a more traditional manufacturing method, but you think that you can come back to it, I think it's fine to just switch and come back when you're ready. Again, mm-hmm. we'll have to see when that happens. But Well, and that kind of brings us to the next point, which is that Tim Ellis said that it was necessary to make this change in order to meet market demand for vehicles this size. So it seems to have something to do with the size of the vehicle, which requires a certain size tank. And that means that you need to use aluminum alloy and use traditional manufacturing techniques. So well, I would like and, more insight into exactly what it means by that. But. Yeah. To be, to be specific, though, in the press release, um, it says, which allows relativity to meet the rapid launch and ramp rate timelines necessary to serve overwhelming market demand and they talk about how many orders they have but ramp rate timelines i think is the big key actually getting your production cadence up is really difficult and there are companies that have been talking about getting their launch and manufacturing cadence up for a long time and either have done it after a lot of hard work or still haven't done it and so i think it's totally fair to see relativity kind of buckle under the (laughs) under the need to actually get that up We'll, we'll we'll see like We'll, we'll see what happens, but like, I don't know, it doesn't, doesn't seem that crazy to me. And I guess the reason that I'm acting a little defensive is because I saw somebody, uh, on Reddit, uh, say, oh, well, they're, they're changing their, they're, they're skipping their first rocket. They're changing the, some of the specs of their second rocket. They must be a scam and compared them unfavorably to a company, uh, that is also not a scam and that this Reddit commenter thought was a scam and i think it's i think this person is really stupid and so i don't want (laughs) anybody else to uh labor under this crazy idea (laughs) that these changes constitute scamosity yeah no i don't think any of our listeners would ever think that um i I certainly don't think that i mean (laughs) the thing is um i completely agree with them and with you that this is the prudent thing to do it's actually just that they were ever thinking of 3d printing tanks in the first place which actually is possible and i think one day yeah, they're still thinking about it. Go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're still thinking about it. But I mean, for real though, like when you think about it, like what you really want to 3D print are the complex manifold shapes of engines. 3D mm-hmm. printing structural parts, like if you can 3D print that, well, great, go for it. But I don't, I don't think it's as as big of a benefit. I mean, it's certainly hard to to scale up, but like eh, I've always been a little iffy on that. Yeah, well, that's why I was kind of like, why. That just surprised me because if we're talking about tanks, I don't see – I mean, I guess there is a benefit somewhere. Yeah, they say it's that they can manufacture them faster and cheaper. Well, okay. That's clearly not the case here. But <laughs> uh-huh. Exactly. <laughs> it seems to be the, the other way around because it, like, it always seemed to me that a tank is a pretty simple thing. But yeah, the complicated stuff, then totally 3D print that. That's the way to go. I mean, it, yeah. it is tough because like with 3D printing, you can like do whatever, whenever. And so you can have like one machine 3D printing multiple rocket diameters, even changing it per mission if you're crazy enough to do that. But, you know, using sheet stock uh, and rolling it into a tube, it's really, really fast, but you can only be really fast at one diameter unless you pay for the tooling and the space to hold that tooling for every diameter that you want, you know, and like th- there are pros and cons and like, you know, joining the domes to the sides like that welding alone, or maybe that welding com- combined with the weld that you have to run up the middle of the sheet stock. Like, yeah, that, that sucks. Like that's expensive in terms of mass and like it's expensive in terms of getting people to do it. So like, yeah, I see where they're, where they're saying that there are benefits. I'm just not sure that they 
actually exist, but we're, we're definitely on the same page here. I think we're just talking about it in very different ways, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. And so I guess one last point, which uh, does pertain to a customer that they have lined up, which would be impulse space. So the plan was to launch in 2024, the Mars cruise vehicle and the Mars lander. But uh, that will have to be pushed back to 2026. And this was always planned to be launched on the Terran R. Um, but the idea was that that would already be an operational vehicle by next year, which does seem a little bit ambitious. So I guess maybe this is not a huge surprise. And uh, certainly pushing it back by two years is, I think, not a big deal. And so they still have that you know, agreement with Impulse Space. But yeah, so those are the changes. I can't wait. I I. Fully expect to see Terran R launch. Uh, I don't know exactly when. Hopefully 2026. Uh, it'll be a cool sight to behold. But for now, I'll just wait for Starship tomorrow. <laughs> right. Uh, sorry, Starship tomorrow sounds very much like a marketing campaign from like the 70s. All right. So let's uh, let's move on to this week in Spaceflight History. We have, I think, seven winners. Six winners who get the bonus points who are Uncle Willie, James O'Connor, Cy Kyle, Hydrak, the Greek, and Henry, and then one that does not get bonus points uh, because there was no explanation of the clue, and that winner is AC Saudi. So you still win. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. It's just a game. It's just a game. That's all you want to do. That's all you have to do. Right. So this week in spaceflight history was the 20th of April, 2004. It was the launch of Gravity Probe B. Dennis pointed out uh, that I actually talked about this on the Don't Panic Geocast four or five years ago. I'll put a link in the show notes. If you don't listen to Don't Panic, you really should. And if you don't follow John Lehman's uh, social media accounts in particular, he's super, super nerdy and like has got some really good like, hey, here's a thing that I built for uh, my geoscience company. Like we needed this one particular thing. And like the engineering things that he puts out are just so itch scratchy for me. <laughs> um, and of course, uh, Shannon Doolin's fantastic, but she doesn't do quite as much nerdy engineering stuff. So, <laughs> but yeah, uh, I'll put a link in the show notes. Gravity Probe B uh, was built to prove one particular corner of relativity theory, and so basically, it's it's a way of testing how much space is warped by uh by mass but like in this case the mass of earth and one thing i'd forgotten was that i went and re-listened to the don't panic geocast episode while i was writing this up and uh in that i mentioned that right after general relativity was like announced somebody went and did calculations looking at the moon's orbit and correcting it based on some of these relativistic effects and like did a partial confirmation of the science, which is really neat. Um, but before Gravity Probe B, there was like this, you can think of it almost like a universal constant, right? That had been theorized to have a certain value and we had like tested it and found it to have a certain value, but we had really wide error bars. And so Gravity Probe B was dramatically shrinking those uh, those error bars. So the two um, relativistic effects um, that were important here or being measured here uh, were the uh, geodetic effect and uh, frame slipping. And they're really weird things. And I don't really feel like talking about them because uh, I know I'm going to screw up and like, I don't have the brain power <laughs> right now to do it, but like pretty cool little bits of relativity that make the world behave in slightly 
weirder ways than you might expect. And so to, to measure this, they wanted to put some gyroscopes up into orbit, let them uh, zoom around the Earth in orbit for a good amount of time and measure how much these gyroscopes processed, uh, meaning how the ang- their, their spin axis changed. If we did not live in a relativistic universe, their spin axis would never change. Um, they'd always be pointing at the same thing in the sky. Um, and because we do live in a relativistic universe, they drifted not by very much, but they did drift. So the, these gyroscopes are actually really beautiful. Um, they're about the size of a ping pong ball. They were uh, one and a half inches or 38 millimeters uh, across the diameter, not radius. And they're made of fused quartz. Um, they're like these, like marbles. They look like smoky glass marbles. Really, really gorgeous. Um, fused quartz actually showed up in a lot of different parts of the instrument because, um, it's very stable, um, in terms of thermal expansion. It really doesn't change that much when you heat it and cool it. And even when it does change, it changes uniformly in, in a nice way. So it's a, it's a very good material. Uh, for this case, it also, um, has no magnetic properties. Like it, there, there's a word for this. It's like there's diamagnetic, paramagnetic, and then like amagnetic or something. Like, but anyway, um, so like there's quartz all through this instrument. So like it's this, it's, it's a really aesthetically pleasing instrument on the inside. On the outside, it's ugly. Like it's butt ugly. But like the fact that so many functional components are made of like, this beautiful, like slightly smoky glass, as well as some very shiny metal that we'll talk about. It's really, really lovely. So th- these gyroscopes um, needed to spin very precisely, um, which means that they really can't have any imperfections, like mechanical imperfections. They have to be a uniform density. They have to be as close to perfectly spherical as possible because every little bit of difference will actually change the way that that they uh, that they spin right and could cause them to process and we we don't want to measure the density differences effect on the spin procession we want to measure the fact that they're orbiting around the earth so these things are super super spherical for all intents and purposes they are perfect spheres they were perfectly spherical within 40 atomic layers that means that if they were the size of the earth the tallest mountain would be 2.4 meters or eight feet tall so that's like eight feet above sea level and then eight feet below sea level for the deepest crevices, crevasses. Like th- these things are just unbelievably smooth, uh, unbelievably round and unbelievably smooth. They needed to have their orientation determined very, very precisely without touching them, right? We want to spin them up and let them spin and never touch them again. And so to do that, they had um, some orientation sensors called SQUIDS, which is really lovely. It's an acronym. It stands for Superconducting Quantum Interference Device, which is like the most uh, portal, like half-lifey kind of title. And so, so basically, these gyroscopes are spinning but so they they have like this thin shell of a of a magnetic uh, material on the outside and that was enough to let them detect um, not only their position uh in space but also their rotation and so they could then have thrusters on the outside of the vehicle that 
push the outside of the satellite so that it's kind of centered on these gyroscopes, much like uh, the LISA experiment, uh, where they, they they were measuring the the changes in length between uh, sensors. Like they're getting ready to do that experiment, kind of like the LIGOS, uh, but in space. So they just had one. They wanted to have this instrument float just on its own without being affected by solar wind. And so in this case, they want this gyroscope to float and orbit just on its own without being affected by the Earth's magnetic field, the Earth's uh, atmosphere, like all these different things. And so they put a shell around it. And so they look at the uh, gyroscope's position in space and push the spacecraft around uh, to keep up as the spacecraft is slowed by the atmosphere. And then they can also measure the spin and what direction that spin is in so they can see uh, how that spin is changing. So the hardest part uh, of this measurement is is measuring the angle of that spin. And the sensors that they built were accurate enough to detect a change in half a milliarc second over a year, which is this, I mean, <laughs> this is a teeny, teeny, tiny degree, like angular measurement. It's so thin that if you had a human hair 32 kilometers, uh, 20 miles away, it would be about the same width as the slice that a milliarc second takes up. It's just teeny, teeny, tiny. Okay, so they, they have these four gyroscopes. Um, they put them inside of a 2.7 meter or nine foot long uh, cigar shaped uh, cryogenic probe. I believe this cigar shaped probe is what floats and what they what they keep in the middle of the spacecraft. Um, they put that inside of what they call the lead bag, um, which was uh, a bunch of a bag full of lead foil to help deaden the interference from the Earth's magnetic field. Interestingly enough. The lead was superconducting. We'll talk about that. This lead bag was then put inside of a doer, which like a, a giant thermos, right? But this this doer was taller than a person. Like it's huge. It could hold two thousand four hundred and forty one liters or six hundred forty five gallons of liquid. And in this case, the liquid that they put in was superfluid helium, so not actually a liquid. Um, and so this. Very, very, very cold helium was at 1.8 Kelvin, which just thermally soaked everything in that doer. Um, so that's how the lead uh, becomes superconducting. And it's uh, also how the coating on the gyroscope rotors uh, becomes superconducting. Uh, just super, super cold. By the way, I, I wanted to wait to mention it because I think it's such a great punch but the coating on the gyroscope rotors wasn't lead. It was niobium, which we already talked about this episode. And I find that very pleasing. <laughs> um, and so that, that niobium being cold enough to superconduct allows them to do the kind of measurements that they need um, where, you know, they're not having to like dump energy into it. They don't have to touch it at all. They can just look at the, um, the magnetic field. Like obviously anytime that you measure a magnetic field, you're also changing it a little bit um, just because you're introducing something that has some amount of resistance. Um, but by being superconducting, that resistance drops down to, I think, essentially zero. I don't think it's actually zero. I think it gets very, 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 very low. And so you can, you can have this magnetic field detection system that, that doesn't, uh, just push the, the gyroscopes around. So the doer is like this insulation and there's also heat shielding on the 
on the outside of the spacecraft surrounding the doer, but like heat still gets in. Um, some of the heat is transmitted in by the, uh, the cabling that like actually has to talk to the electronics inside. Um, but interestingly enough, um, some of the heat is brought in by photons. Part of the measurement that they're doing includes using a telescope to uh, sight a guide star. Well, the problem is that the telescope has to be connected to the gyroscopes, right? It needs, we want to measure where the gyroscopes are, not the vehicle outside the gyroscopes. And so um, as good of a telescope as you build, the whole point of it is still to admit photons and those photons carry heat or carry energy that becomes heat. So, you know, the, the helium is going to boil. It's going to turn back into a gas as the heat is added. And the way that they handled this is really cool. So they had a, what they called a porous plug, uh, which would allow uh, gaseous helium to escape, but not the superfluidic helium. And once they uh, get that gaseous helium out, right, it, it's pulling heat away from the doer and helping to cool it, um, but it's still really, really cold. And so they're able to flow that through the heat shields on the outside of the spacecraft um, to help cool them down. But then at that point, you know, it's now much hotter but it's still useful. It's a gas. And so they actually, instead of just dumping it overboard, which you'd call a non-propulsive vent, they actually propulsively vent it. They use it as the propellant mass, or the, sorry, the reactant mass in the RCS thrusters. So they can account for the drag of the atmosphere by spurting out this gaseous helium through a thruster. And like, it's such an hmm. elegant solution. Um, and it, it really, <laughs> Really is lovely how much work the ceiling does. This kind of reminds me of the discussion we were having last week about using gas that boils off. So is this something that was continuously happening? Like, mm -hmm. I'm wondering if the amount of gas that was venting was equal to the amount of thrust needed, because how do you- That's a great question. Balance those two. Yeah. I mean, it, it can't be per perfectly equal because the amount of thrust that you need is constantly changing and the, the boil off is going to be relatively- uh, consistent. So I can't imagine that it was perfectly equal, but I suspect that it was greater than the amount of thrust they actually needed. And so mm -hmm. I'll bet that they did a lot of counterproductive thrusting where they would speed up and slow down and speed up and slow down just to meet the boil off, you know, spending the, the boil off, which is kind of like this base requirement. But I, I don't know. I wasn't able to find that answer, but I, I had the exact same question. I think it's a very good question. Um, but yeah, that's, that's this week in spaceflight, he spaceflight helium is what I almost said. <laughs> that's this week in spaceflight history. Where spaceflight meets general relativity. That's always scary for me. I'm glad I didn't have to cover that one. <laughs> well, I definitely took a sidestep around the relativity. Yeah, true. Yeah. <laughs> I think I understand it, but that's not the same as actually understanding it. All right. So next week, um, we're going to have Dennis do that one, but obviously he's not here. So Ben, do you have a clue for us on his behalf? Next week, uh, in 1985, the clue is Shuttle Spelunkin. A very Dennis clue. Since I forgot, just to give the date range, that is uh, the 25th of April through the 1st of May. So that's your date range. And yeah, the clue is Shuttle B-1. 
Spelunkin in 1985. So if you think you know what that's in reference to, give us a tweet with the hashtag this week SF and good luck. Good luck, everybody. Moving right along to upcoming spaceflight events. Got five of those. I think four of them are launches. So pretty mm-hmm. decently busy week. First launch is Starlink uh, Group 62 launching on a Falcon 9 Block 5 on Wednesday, April 19th at 1228 hours UTC. Um, and I, I guess like maybe Starship will also be launching this week if it hasn't already launched. (laughs) Like if it's been delayed, like keep an eye out for it. All right. And then after that, we have on the 22nd, we have a PSLV launch with Telios 2. Uh, So this is a Singaporean Earth observation satellite. So that's being launched by ISRO on the uh, PSLV. It's going into a sun-synchronous orbit, uh, launching from the Satish Dhawan Space Center. Oh, and I guess I should give the time, uh, the launch window for that. Uh, Again, on the 22nd of April is from 8.30 UTC through 1100 UTC. That's not the launch window. That's just a NOTAM because this is a sun synchronous launch. So it'll have an instantaneous launch window, but that's the NOTAM. Yep, good point. Well, that's your own launch window, if you will. That's a personal right. <laughs> launch window. Not- <laughs> that's the <an> observation window. <laughs> right. There you go. An observation window. Um, and yeah, so launching from the Satish Dawan Space Center from the first launch pad. That's what it's called, apparently. So cool. Uh, yep. Check that one out. After that, is a, a Falcon Heavy launch. Pretty cool. Launching Viasat 3 Americas. So, you know, it's uh, uh, basically TV satellite, a communication satellite. I, I still think of these things, you know, anything that's in geo that's talking to civilians, it's like, oh, that's satellite TV. But then, you know, m- more than that. Uh, but uh, Viasat threes are like really really chunky space age really cool uh expensive satellites right launching on a falcon heavy which i think this is what are we we're still in the single digits but we're getting close to the 10th launch and this is going to be happening uh i believe this actually is the launch window or is more representative of the launch window uh monday april 24th uh between 2324 hours utc to the next morning april 25th uh at uh zero eighteen hundred hours utc after that we have another starlink launch on the 25th uh starlink group 35 so yeah another batch of starlink satellites on a falcon 9 block 5 uh launching from vandenberg so uh this will be slightly different i guess going into one of those i guess higher inclination orbits launching at on the 25th of april at some point between 1302 uh, utc through 1448 some point then you can watch that launch it'll be launching from uh, slick 4e from vandenberg so check that one out if you like starlinks and then Last of all, we have the opposite of a launch, I suppose. Um, it's the attempted lunar landing of the Hakuto R vehicle. Um, this is really cool. So the lander is going to be targeting uh, the Atlas Crater, um, which is uh, southeast of uh, Mare Frigoris. And the landing is scheduled to take place Tuesday, April 25th at 16.40 hours UTC. Uh, there will be a live stream, but I don't see a link yet. Um, ispace-inc.com, ispaceinc.com uh, is probably where they're going to post it. Um, there's also a, a Twitter account they have, ispace underscore inc. I would keep an eye out as we approach the 25th, one week uh, from the day that you're listening to this. Um, 
<laughs> you know what I mean. One week from the earliest day you could, po- unless you tuned into the live stream. But yeah, this, this is going to be really cool. Yeah. So keep an eye out for that. Hopefully next week we will be talking about on the show. All right. Those are your upcoming spaceflight events. With that, let's do about the show. And we'd like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to Colin, Deathkin, the Greek, and Jonesy for joining our recording session today and helping us make correction burns on the fly. Also, like, Dennis popped in, and I'll say hi to Dennis yeah. as well. And if you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign affiliate links and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, please visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. And you can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcasts on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. All right, so that's it. We'll see you all next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everyone.